Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters is your spot this holiday weekend to watch UFC 276 on Saturday night as Israel Adesanya faces Jared Cannonier. Visit walters.com backslash events for more information. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The 2-1. Swing a high, high drive deep left field toward the corner. Way back goes Thomas, and it is gone. A soaring drive about seven rows deep into section 105 giving Miami a 1-0 lead. The 0-1. Swing a hard shot. It gets past Franco to his glove side for a hit. Rounding third, coming home is Garcia. Adrianza's fire to the plate is offline, and so Garcia will score. It's now Miami 5 and the Nationals 1. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, July 2nd, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider, or should I say, Nationals color commentator, Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. So Friday was July 1st, 2022, the one-year anniversary of something that in so many ways captured the Nats' 2021 season. Alex Avila playing second base for the Nats in a loss to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park, July 1st, 2021. More on that game later in the show. Well, wouldn't you know it, on the one-year anniversary of Alex Avila being a true team player in playing second base for the Nats, our guy, our pal, Mark Zuckerman, a true team player in serving as the color commentator on a Nats telecast on Masson in what ended up being a 6-3 loss to the Miami Marlins at Nationals Park, on Friday night in game one of a four-game series. Josiah Gray was not good. We'll get to that shortly. But Mark, very nice job. And I mean that. I mean, you got put in a tough spot. You succeeded. I just hope that you did not suffer bilateral calf strains as Alex Avila did on July 1st of last year. You know, my legs are a little sore, Al. Is that supposed to be normal after calling a game on TV? Maybe I need to get that checked out. I might have to go on the IL now and miss the rest of the season because of it. That's funny. I hadn't even thought about that, even though I wrote about on MassInSports.com earlier in the day how this was the anniversary of when everything fell apart for them. And it kind of began with that Alex Avila at the uh, second base thing. Yeah, look, I came to the ballpark expecting to do my usual job <laughs> uh, situation, as we've seen the last few years. Things can happen very quickly. There can be changes. Happy report, Bob Carpenter, Dan Colker, they're both feeling very well, minimal, if any, symptoms, I think, uh, from them. But they both tested positive the last few days. And so you get called in and you know, Kevin Franzen made a whole career as being a utility guy, so I just sort of took his lead. He knew what he was doing, and he was very good to me. The producers, everybody were very good to me and made it easy for me. Hopefully, people enjoyed the broadcast. I imagine they would have enjoyed it more if the Nats had won. But I had a good time, and I appreciate the opportunity, and we'll be happy to hand that job back over to the real professionals here soon enough. 
So I know you've done a lot of TV work at Masson over the years, but you had not done an actual game before. I guess I, I had thought that maybe at some point something like this had happened, but it had not. You This was your first actual game broadcast, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they had never had to go that far down the depth chart before. <laughs> um, I've done the pregame show. I've done the postgame show. I was sideline reporter a couple weeks ago for the first time. I've, you know, made lots of appearances and all that. But no, this was the first time other than, you know, in my mind growing up watching baseball and calling a game in my own head for nobody else to hear. Uh, this was the first time that I had actually done it in front of an audience. And I, I hope it came out all right. I, I hope I didn't make too many mistakes. We, we were thrown into a tough spot. But, you know, under the circumstances, I, I think we did all right. And I hope everyone enjoyed it. I mean it. I, I think you did a really nice job. And I will say that our experience doing this, I think, actually helped me because it felt a little similar to this just with the game going on live instead of after the fact. So thank you for helping get me ready for this. You can call me Kevin Franzen as the show goes on, if you like, if that makes you feel better. Well, like you said, it was not a good night for the Nats on Friday night. And the disappointment starts with Josiah Gray. You know, he had been so good lately. And not that you just assume now he's going to be great start in, start out. But, you know, you, you want to see that ascension. And we understand progress isn't linear, right? So you'll have like two good starts, maybe one bad start. And unfortunately, Friday night ended up being one of Josiah Gray's poor starts this season. So 6-3 loss to the Marlins. Josiah Gray, six runs in five and two-thirds innings. He gave up a whopping 10 hits in this game, a home run, two doubles, and seven singles. Now, in Josiah's defense, some of this was uh, what we call getting babiffed. Like, some of this was just some soft contact that landed in no man's land. But still, I mean, 10 hits are 10 hits. He did have six strikeouts versus two walks, so that was good. But he ended up throwing 95 pitches over his five and two-thirds innings. And I don't know, he just seemed off in this game. He was so on in these recent outings. He did have six strikeouts on Friday night, but this was not Josiah Gray at his best. No, it wasn't. Now, the first two innings, really good. Six up, six down. He strikes out the side in the second, and you're thinking, okay, here we go. He's got it tonight. And then he gives up a leadoff homer to Brian Anderson in the third, but then gets two outs. And I think the whole game changed on the two-out walk to John Birdie. And the reason it changed is because you put Birdie on base right now, and there may be no more dangerous man in baseball on the bases, even more than his teammate Jazz Chisholm, who's on the IL. They don't have to worry about Jazz this weekend. They got to worry about John Birdie. He had 18 stolen bases in June, most in the majors by a long shot. And what you saw in that third inning, this was crazy. They literally threw a pitch out. I don't remember the last time I saw a true pitch out in a game. They throw the pitch out. He holds. And then what do you know? The next pitch, he steals second. And now he's in scoring position. And then next thing you know, Joey Wendell is scoring him on a single, an RBI double from Garrett Cooper. And it's like the wheels just started to come off after that. And it was unfortunate. This was not the Josiah Gray we've seen for the last month. Like you said, some weak contact, but there were some hard hits as well. well. The pitch count started to get up there. And, you know, it just was not the guy we've become used to seeing. And I guess some credit to the Marlins, who have just been a thorn in the Nats' side all season long. This is getting kind of crazy. Yeah, uh, one in nine now is the Nats' record against the Marlins this season. That's brutal. Against the Marlins team that, you know, isn't awful, but certainly isn't good and is at best is the number four team in the National League East. I mean, no, nobody's going to try to argue otherwise. But yeah, so for Josiah Gray, so top of the third gives up three runs. Like Mark said, leadoff homer to Brian Anderson. Then the two-out five-pitch walk of John Birdie. Then a two-out opposite field RBI single by Joey Wendell. And this was one of those weak contact hits. This single went to shallow, and I mean shallow left field, like right to where the outfield grass picks up from the infield dirt 
And then Gray gave up a two-out RBI double uh, to Garrett Cooper toward the left field corner. So all of that was just in a three-run third. Then Gray gave up another run in the top of the fifth. Lead-off first pitch double by Miguel Rojas to right. One-out full count RBI sack fly by John Birdie. Marlins go up 4-1. And then Gray gave up two more singles in that inning. And then Gray in the top of the six gave up two runs. He began the inning by allowing four consecutive singles. He then issued a two-out four-pitch walk of Joey Wendell and then got pulled from the game. That was it. Davey Martinez had seen enough, and uh, I think most of us had seen enough. It, it just was unfortunate to see this. I mean, Josiah Gray lately just had been really impressive. Uh, you go back to his last outing, maybe his best outing of the season, the 3-2 loss at the Texas Rangers last Saturday. Two runs, seven innings, nine strikeouts versus one walk. His prior outing, 2-1, 10-inning loss to the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park on June 18th. Six scoreless innings, all be them on 117 pitches. So we're going to have outings like this with him. We understand that. Uh, The ERA for the season now is back to being over four. 15 starts for Gray this year, 422 ERA. And I guess that's just the thing to keep in mind. You want the overall trajectory to be upward. And I think it still is with him, but it's not linear. We wish it was, but it isn't. It is kind of like two good starts, one bad start, good start, bad start. That's kind of how it has been with Josiah Gray this year. Yeah. And you, you know, that the next one's really important now, obviously. You want to see him bounce back and be the guy that he was. Now, I think the next one will come against the Phillies in uh, Philadelphia Citizens Bank Park. So as we know, that's a very tough lineup to go up against, although he did well against them here on Ryan Zimmerman Day a couple weeks ago. So that's a good sign. But you got to the end of that outing, you could see he was kind of on fumes at that point, even though the pitch count was not that high. But, you know, I think back those last two starts, he had extra rest. We talked about he had the one start skipped, so he had a ton of extra rest. And then he had two extra days because of off days before that game in Texas. And... You did wonder how much difference does that make? Did that help him out? Uh, I know they had an off day this week, so it's not like he uh, was working on you know normal four days. He had an extra day as well. But you could tell by that last inning, it just wasn't there anymore. And um, you could see Davey Martinez didn't want to take any more chances. And he went to Erasmo Ramirez in a tough spot with the bases loaded that turned into a whole different situation itself. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get to that momentarily. I think it's interesting with pitchers on rest because for years we've had this standard thing of five-man rotation. You pitch on four days rest, maybe occasionally five. The idea that everyone needs the exact same amount of rest is, of course, not true, right? Like There probably are some guys who could pitch more often, and there probably are other guys who would be better off not pitching as often. Now, I know you can't just do it so that everyone gets the exact amount of rest that he needs, but you know, I, I think that's like always something I kind of remind myself of, like this cookie cutter thing that we've had in MLB for so long of like five man rotation, four days rest between starts. Like, what if it is that Josiah Gray is just better off on five days rest, and like that's the way he should be handled moving forward? And I know it's not as simple as that, but I don't know. I just always kind of think of stuff like that, like. It doesn't have to be that everyone is exactly the same, and it would be nice if there was a way to kind of better tailor pitcher schedules to what each guy can do. Easier said than done, obviously. Yeah, and maybe for young pitchers, that is something to consider even more. And I know it is something they want to try to do with uh, Josiah. Remember, they're watching his innings this year. He hasn't had a full big league season, certainly, and even not that much in the minors. He was only drafted a handful of years ago, and remember, he wasn't always a pitcher. He was a an infielder at first in college. So I think they are going to be looking for ways to space him out, try to minimize the innings, and at least make sure they get him all the way through September without you know getting up there around the 200-inning mark, anything like that. They would like to keep him more, I think, at the 175, 180. So there may be some more opportunities, but 
you know, unless you have a real sixth starter, and God knows this team does not at the moment, it's hard to do that just to cater to one guy. You're going to have to put guys out there, you know, every fifth game, whether it's every five days or six days. Yeah. I mean, we've seen the Angels do it with Shohei Otani, but that's a special circumstance, obviously. Roaming Rooster, the best fried chicken sandwich in the DMV, is expanding. You've already seen our location by Section 238 at Nationals Park, but now we have recently opened locations in Pike and Rose in Maryland, and in Virginia, we now have Burke and Chantilly. Our chicken is grain-fed, antibiotic-free, and only free-range. Roaming Rooster is serving homemade enhanced bun milkshakes and frozen custard scoops at select locations and currently working on rolling them out to all locations. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. And that's low, back pick throw to first. The tag is in time for the out. They throw home, but the third out was recorded. So out at first is Wendell. Breaking for the plate was Anderson. So Mark mentioned what happened uh, with Kbert Ruiz. This was some play, and this was actually some night for Kbert Ruiz. He hit a home run on a night on which the Nats offense wasn't doing much. But the back pick at first base, this really has become a staple in the defensive arsenal of Kbert Ruiz. So Josiah Gray exits the game with two outs in the top of the sixth inning. The bases are loaded. Erasmo Ramirez comes into the game, bases loaded, Two outs, Nats are down 6-1. You say to yourself, well, this game has a chance to really get blown wide open by the Marlins at this point. And then Bear Ruiz does what he has done a whole lot of here over these last few weeks now, picks off a runner at first base on a back pick. Uh, picked off Joey Wendell at first for the third out with the bases loaded. Uh, credit to Josh Bell, who made a nice catch and tag of Wendell. Then had to throw home because the Marlins, I think it was Brian Anderson, right, astutely tried to score from third base, the play had to be looked at, but ultimately uh, the out was what the result ended up being. Now, we've talked about this. Kbert, he uh, had a throwing error not that long ago on one of these back pick throw attempts. So, you know, you kind of have to take the bad with the good, I suppose. But I feel like there has been more good than bad 
And he's really becoming a master of this, getting guys out on these back pick throws to first base. And this was obviously a huge spot to do this. Maybe it was risky, but the risk sure did pay off. It was a huge gamble with the bases loaded in that situation. And you've got to imagine the Marlins know that it's a possibility. If they aren't aware of that, then that's shame on them for not scouting properly. But it may just be the kind of thing that even if you know it's coming, if it's executed well, it's maybe hard to get back in time. So props to him, props to Josh Bell, who always gets there and always finds a way. He may be falling over, he may be rolling around, but he gets there, he catches the ball, makes the tag, and then kind of make sure he keeps the tag on. Because I think in the end, Wendell may have beaten the initial throw and tag, but then that hand came off the base and Bell was tagging him before he'd get anything else on the base. And I think that's in the end what the umpires saw and were calling on it. But also, you pointed out, Brian Anderson raced home, and Josh Bell threw there, and it was too late. And that's not quite the exact same thing as we saw the other day, but it is a reminder in this age of replay. They always say, finish the play out, because if the umpires, if New York was to overturn that and say that he was actually safe at first, I believe the rest of that play counts, and Anderson would have scored, and that would have really cost the Nationals. I think it's interesting with Josh Bell, because he's a bigger guy You don't think of him as like your classic athletic baseball player, but he is athletic. Athleticism comes in a lot of different forms. Josh Bell, very early in his baseball career as an amateur, was actually an outfielder. So the guy can move a little bit. Like he's got some flexibility. He's got some dexterity. We've seen that on the base path somewhat. And so I think like he does deserve credit here for making these catches. These are not easy catches to make and, you know, applying tags and he falls down and stuff like that, but he's able to sort of contort and twist his body to where he can apply the tag. So he may not look the part, but I think he's got some like sneaky athleticism and flexibility to him to where these back pick throws can work. He's not some like lumbering, lead-footed first baseman to whom, you know, you just have to make a perfect throw or else you got no shot, right? The throw can be a little off and Bell can make that catch. So I think he deserves credit for that. Yeah, I think we mentioned the other day, it doesn't always look aesthetically pleasing, but the guy plays hard at everything, whether it's in the field, whether it's on the bases, you can't question the effort. And, you know, he's getting the job done on these. It doesn't matter what it looks like. He's just got to catch the ball, get the tag down, and he's able to do that multiple times, including that one that ended the game in Cincinnati, I think was maybe the best example of it. Props to him. It's not an easy thing to do. I mean, and he's playing well behind the runner. It's not like he's right on his tail. The whole point is that he seems to the runner like he's nowhere to be found, no nothing to be concerned with. And he ends up scampering right behind him, making the catch, putting the tag down, falling over in the process. And they're as good at this as anybody, maybe other than Yadier Molina right now. Will it keep up? Will teams just realize it's going to happen and not take any chances? I don't know. But props to them because they're managing to pull this thing off way more often than they get it wrong. Yeah. And this is not something that people necessarily saw coming with Kbert Ruiz, that he would be some master of the back pick. But at least these last few weeks, if not months now, uh, he's done a really good job there. And he hit a home run on Friday night. Uh, two run, that six, a two out first pitch, two run homer to center field to cut the Nats deficit to 6-3. The Nats scored three runs on Friday night. It was Juan Soto igniting each run-scoring inning for the Nats. He, in that two-run six, had a leadoff double down the right field line on an 0-2 pitch. And then he, in a one-run fourth, drew a leadoff eight-pitch walk, despite having been down to the count at one point 
0-2. There really wasn't much happening offensively for the Nats in this game. You had Ruiz with the homer, you had Soto with his double in his walk, and you had the aforementioned Josh Bell with another multi-hit game, two for four with a double and a single. Bottom of the first, a two-out opposite field double to right field, and then Bell in the Nats, one run fourth, an opposite field single to right field on a 1-2 pitch. The Nats are lucking out this uh, series against the Marlins. No Sandy Alcantara, thank God. They were facing in this game Trevor Rogers, who has not had a great season, but the offense didn't do much in this game. I mean, you sort of lucked out in facing a Rogers or missing Alcantara, but at least on Friday night, the Nats offense looked as it has looked way too often against the Marlins this season, just not doing much. And I mean, Rogers, like you said, hasn't been great against the rest of the league, but against the Nats, he's been fantastic. Third start against them. And I think it's now four total runs allowed in 16 innings. So he's been very good. They were not able to do much at all against him. Uh, the lefty was tough on them. You had a Josh Bell double in the first inning, nothing else doing there. The big spot I thought was the fourth. Soto draws a leadoff walk. Bell with the single down the line, and you got nobody out, and birthday boy Nelson Cruz up, and boy, Cruz did not have a good night at the plate to celebrate number 42, and it's not just the outs. I mean, that was a 6-4-3 double play that killed that inning, but he wasn't showing any patience at all. First pitch he saw in the first inning, grounds out. It was a sharp ground out, but he was the first pitch. The double play, first pitch. Third at bat, ground out on the second pitch. He was not really working the count, and I don't know if that was by design, or what, but that kind of cost him in this game because he came up with some chances to drive some guys in and do some damage on his birthday, and he didn't come close to doing it. Yeah, he's cooled off a little bit here lately. Uh, he had a game earlier this week in which he left seven men on base in the game, and you know, even with his success, the home runs still really have not come. You know, it's been a lot of singles. He's had some doubles, had a few homers, but. You know, we're still kind of waiting on that power to show up this season. And, you know, at this point, we got a month left with him here before he gets dealt before August 2nd. I don't know uh, if that power is uh, is going to be coming. By the way, so Cruz turned 42. I find this fascinating. I love stuff like this. Turned 42 on Friday. That was July 1st. When you have to figure out, you say, okay, it's a player's age, whatever season. The cutoff is midnight of June 30th that year. If you go to baseball reference, you can find that out. That's the cutoff, June 30th of that year. So this season technically is Nelson Cruz's age 41 season, if you go by baseball reference. He's right on that borderline of what age season this is. That is what you call dork baseball talk right there. But I just get such a kick out of something like that, that Cruz is right on the border of what age season this should be for him. I actually noticed that the other night myself when I was looking it up on him and because I was going to say the same thing, like, how have other guys done in their age 42 season? I said, oh, no, wait a minute. He just misses the cutoff. He's age 41 officially because I guess that would normally July 1st, you'd already be at the halfway point of the season. They're not quite there yet. This was game 79. It's like my son's birthday is August 29th. And the cutoff for Little League is September 1st. And so he counts as a year older than he actually is, which isn't fair because he should be playing with the kids who are his age and his grade. And sometimes he gets bumped up before he should be. Whatever age he is, though, Nelson Cruz did not have a very good night at the plate. And look, as a fellow 40-something, and I know you are as well, we want to see these guys succeed. We want to see that you can continue to do it into your fourth decade, but not a great night for him at the plate. No, Nats finished the game three runs, five hits, three walks. Uh, the Nats in the game with runners in scoring position, a mere one for seven. So going back to the position of catcher, very interesting roster maneuvering by the Nats 
On Friday afternoon, they optioned Riley Adams to AAA Rochester and recalled Tress Barrera. Yeah, remember him from Rochester. Uh, You know, I feel like this is one of these things that in the moment is surprising, but when you think about it, it actually does make sense. Riley Adams has not had a very good season, and he really isn't playing that much. Riley Adams this season, OPS plus of just 76 over 88 plate appearances in 27 games. He's only played in 27 games this year. For all of the talk of maybe some action at first base, I think it was like one game where he was at first base, and that's it. So he's, he's playing like one out of every three games, essentially, as Cape Ruiz's backup, and he has not done much when he has played. And it's funny because last year, he was really good, and last year, he was really good over about the same sample size, 90 plate appearances, OPS plus 146. This season, 88 plate appearances, OPS plus of 76. And then also, I thought Tres Pereira actually was pretty good for the Nats last season, at the major league level. He's kind of become a forgotten man. We never really talk about him, but I remember we did have some discussions last season of, you know, the Nats have three interesting young catchers now in Ruiz, Adams, and Barrera. So I don't know. You think this is going to be the case for a while here, that Tress Barrera is going to be the number two catcher for uh, at least a foreseeable future? I think so. As long as Caber Ruiz is starting the majority of games, and that looks like that's going to continue as long as he's healthy, I think it, there's a couple reasons behind this. I think first and foremost, it's they want to get Riley Adams more consistent playing time. He's probably not benefiting from sitting on the bench uh, as much as he is, and it's not like he's producing a whole lot. That's been a disappointment because we thought that this guy was going to be a, a strong hitting catcher, and that maybe the defense would be the bigger issue for him, and he has not just really hit with any consistency this year. Now, is that because he's struggling as a hitter, or is it because he's not playing nearly as much. Who knows? Chicken or the egg there. But not a lot of harm in sending him down and letting him now be the number one catcher at Rochester and start, you know, four times a week instead of one or two. So you would hope that that would do something for him. Barrera, I agree, impressed last year. I mean, there was a point that he was kind of their number one when they had a bunch of guys injured and he held down well. I mean, he did a good job with that. And all of a sudden they acquired these two other catchers and he became the odd man out. Now, one other point, you mentioned uh, Riley Adams at first base. It did happen the one time that was the emergency. That was the Lucius Fox vomit game, which we will forever remember. And all of a sudden Adams is taken over at first base for the first time. He has not done it again since Davey Martinez was asked before the game about the optioning of him down there. Is any of this designed to try to get him some work at first base? And if you want to read between the lines, the Nats may need a first baseman here in about a month if Josh Bell is no longer on the team come August 2nd. Davey shot that down pretty forcefully. It does not sound like that is at least their intentions right now. They continue to insist that that would be more of an emergency situation, that they view Riley Adams as a catcher first and foremost. Whatever you want to think about any of that, the key right now, Riley Adams needs to play and he needs to start hitting And that's how he'll get his ticket back to the big leagues, whatever the position is. Yeah, so I was going to bring that up. Who is going to play first base for this team if slash when it trades Josh Bell by August 2nd? This installment of the Nats Chat podcast is for July 2nd. We're now inside of a month here until or, or one month away from the trade deadline. Who can play first base? I mean, I know we have seen some of Juan Soto, I guess, like in pregame warmups at first base at times, right? I mean, I remember that came up at some point, maybe last year or this year, whatever it was. But like, who is an option on this team to play first base if the Nats trade away Josh Bell? Well, this is going to depend on what other moves they potentially make. But if he stays, I could see Michael Franco 
going across the diamond. That was kind of the intention originally this year is that he would be the corner infielder backing up at both spots. You would then have, at least on the current roster, you have A. Ray Adrianza, you have Alcides Escobar that could play some third base. Somebody would get called up. Maybe we see a Jake Knoll again. He can play both positions. There's a guy at AAA who plays first base named Joey Manessis. I think he has, he's an older player. I want to say 29 or something like that. Uh, perhaps he'd be in the mix. Perhaps whatever moves they have up their sleeve come August 2nd would involve the acquisition of a younger player who could play one of those positions. That would be something to consider as well. So uh, there's not an obvious answer to that. I'm sure while Mike Rizzo is considering it right now, if you're Davey Martinez, uh, you're going to continue to assume that Josh Bell is a part of your team until he's not. So you're going to just pencil him in every single day. But it does raise a question of what would they do there. And that's one of several positions that could a month from now suddenly become open. Would they put Soto at first? I mean, they, they do have the fourth outfielder. Do you think they would try that or is that not something they want to do? I don't think they would do that until they were convinced that, that was a, an actual move for the long term. I mean, he every once in a while takes some grounders there, but that's not something that he it's even less than Riley Adams has taken balls there. And I mean, the last thing you would want to have happen is some kind of crazy play and Soto at first base not being familiar with the position. Yep, think of those back pick plays. You're going to try to run that, and now he's diving across and banging up his knee or something. I I just don't think they if, – if that was ever in the plan – and it's not to say it couldn't someday be in the plans, but kind of like Ryan Zimmerman when he moved to first base, you go into an offseason planning for that. You have him get all kinds of extra work. You go to spring training, really pound it. Uh, into him, and then you start the season like that. I don't think that's something in the middle of a season they would do just as a temporary fix. Well, you said the name. I didn't. Ryan Zimmerman. Hey, Zim, you want to come back out of retirement and (laughs) play out the string? Can we pull that number 11 down off the facade? (laughs) Play for a totally meaningless team in terms of uh, the 2022 season with what's left after the trade deadline? Yeah, probably not. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small-town charm and big-league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. Visit BigTrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July. So Wendell was over there, but it was Bernie who fielded it. That didn't look like Wendell. Here's a swing and a ground ball. The left side charging in to get it is Anderson. The throw to first. And the game is over as Cooper handles the throw. So Cesar Hernandez grounds out on the 1-0 pitch. And Tanner Scott out of the bullpen closes the door with a 1-2-3 bottom of the ninth inning. And the Marlins have done it again as they take game one of this four-game series. And have now won nine of the ten games played between the two clubs, including all four so far. Played here at Nationals Park. Also for the Nats on Friday afternoon, uh, some bullpen maneuverings. They designated Sam Clay for assignment. Yes, yeah, Sam Clay got DFA'd, and the Nats returned from rehab assignment and reinstated Mason Thompson from the 60-day injured list. Mason Thompson was originally placed on the 10-day IL all the way back on April 10th. Uh, he was out with a uh, biceps injury. Remember, he had that game. It was a game against the Mets in April where he threw like three pitches and then was shaking his arm. It was kind of a scary scene. You, you know, you thought maybe an elbow situation, something like that. No, he ended up being placed on uh, the IL with a right bicep strain, eventually got transferred 
to the 60-day IL. And Mason Thompson did pitch on Friday night. That's bullpen on Friday night actually was good. Erasmo Ramirez, Reed Garrett, and Mason Thompson combined for three and a third scoreless innings. Erasmo tossed one and a third scoreless innings. Reed Garrett, a scoreless top of the eighth. Mason Thompson, scoreless top of the ninth. So Mason Thompson had not pitched in a game at the major league level since April 9th. Reed Garrett, who I think most people maybe have forgotten about it, he had not pitched in a game since June 18th. When he came into the game, I said to myself, boy, it's been a while since he pitched. When was the last time he pitched? June 18th. Friday night was July 1st. I can't remember the last time a Nats pitcher was out for essentially two weeks like that and yet was still on the roster. That is remarkable. And there was nothing physically wrong with him. He was available that whole time. That was Ryan Zimmerman Day, June 18th. That's the last time Reed Garrett had pitched. And it just was, you know, a combination of the rotation has been so good that they've been getting deeper in games. They've been ahead or it's been close. So he's been going with the A bullpen a lot. Edwards, Finnegan, Rainey. The situation had not come up for it. And, you know, I was thinking, boy, he's going to be rusty going out there. And you can do all the work you want in the bullpen, but, you know, it's just not the same as pitching against real hitters in real games. But to his credit, Eight pitches, five strikes, got through the inning, so good on him for that. We'll see if he uh, has more opportunities again coming up to do this or not. But it, it's funny, you know, they had for most of the year nine relievers, and then all of a sudden they were forced to get rid of one. That was in a new MLB rule to trim the uh, pitching staff down to 13 total. And you're thinking, oh, boy, they could be in trouble. And what they wound up having happen was several of these guys who barely pitched at all, and Reed Garrett was at the top of the list. So kind of bizarre. I guess it's a good thing that they haven't needed to use him, but unfortunate for him as a guy who certainly has wanted to pitch in a few more big league games over the last two weeks, not just watch from the bullpen. All right. Since we last did an installment of the Nats Chat podcast, there has been a lot of Juan Soto contract stuff out there. Just to get you caught up, uh, this guy Hector Gomez, an MLB insider based in the Dominican Republic, he on Thursday afternoon had a report that read as follows, quote, talks are intensifying between the Nationals and Juan Soto regarding a second offer from the team to the star for a 13-year, $425 million extension, which will increase the initial $350 million offer by $75 million, end quote. Uh, We then got multiple reports that the terms that Gomez reported, 13 years, $425 million, were false, but also that talks were going on between Soto and the Nats regarding a contract extension. Soto spoke on Friday before the game. He said the following, quote, everybody wants to go to free agency and see how the market is going to be for them. But for me, I really don't know if I want to go there or if I want to stay here. I feel really good here, end quote. That was tweeted out by uh, Jesse Doherty, the post, uh, those quotes there from Juan Soto. What do you make of, I guess, all of this? I mean, we're going to get stuff and some of it's going to be true. And in this day and age, some of it's not going to be so true. But that quote from Soto saying, I don't know if I want to go into free agency. Do you buy that, that this could be like what we had with Steven Strasburg in 2016 when he signed that in-season extension? And Strasburg, of course, like Soto, is a Scott Boris client. Could it be that Soto has some Strasburg in him and doesn't want to hit the open market? Or do you think that this is just posturing from Soto? You know, I think it's entirely possible. I can also imagine, and Strasburg knew this early on, Bryce Harper knew it. And I think in the end, the fact that he signed with the Phillies for as long as he did kind of underscored this, that he was kind of sick of having to deal with this all the time. 
And I imagine Juan Soto is already kind of getting annoyed with this. I mean, he's still two and a half years to go before he can become a free agent, and he's constantly getting questions about his future. And you understand why that's the case. But part of you may be like, I don't want to go through this for the next two and a half years, have to deal with this constantly. And, you know, he's not had the best season, at least by his standards. Maybe it is somewhere in the recesses of his mind. It's on his mind and, and, and plaguing him in some way or consuming some of his attention. You know, I don't know. I think when you're put into that spot and now you're talking to reporters on the record, you're going to try to say the diplomatic thing. And I think that's probably some of this as well. I think based on having gotten to know him a little bit over the years and just seeing the trajectory of the career and everything else, I think it really boils down to this. If I'm Juan Soto, the first two years, obviously, here were phenomenal, as good as you could ask for. Year three and four, not as great, but they started off, you know, with promise. And then you saw it all blow up. And all of a sudden, the situation is very different. If I'm him, I want to see some evidence, some signs of where this may be going and believe that before long, this team is going to be in a position to try to do again what it did in 2019. That doesn't mean that he absolutely would leave uh, or absolutely would stay. I, I think that is a factor, though. If you're him and you're making that kind of commitment, you want to be somewhere where you think you have a chance to win because you've already experienced it. Like so few guys, so few star players get to do that that early in their career. That's kind of all they know now. And anything less than that seems it's such a step back for them. But on top of all that, he has the same questions we all do. Who's owning the team? How much money are they going to spend? What is the direction of the franchise? And so for me, I understand why this stuff gets out now, and I understand why the Nats are making offers and how it gets out, but I have a hard time believing there's going to be any resolution to any of this for a while, because do the learners sign him to a major contract right now? Does he sign with the Nationals right now, not knowing the ownership situation? I just feel like that has to come first one way or the other, right? Uh, yes. And so that's why I wonder if maybe he's been told some things. You know, what if it is that the learners aren't selling the team outright? What if it is? I mean, I don't believe this to be true, but what if it is true that all the learners are doing are taking on new minority investors and they've communicated that to Juan? Well, then I think that might change the dynamic a little bit in terms of Juan's willingness to resign. But to your point, why would you resign with the team as bad as it is right now? And the problem for the Nats is that the contract timetable is not on their side. Soto is under team control through 2024. So the Nats, by 2024, have to be showing tangible signs that they're a team on the rise. Now, they could be doing that, but that would require things getting better pretty quickly here. And I don't know, with how bad things have been this season, I don't know how realistic it is that by 2024, the team is on the ascension again. Maybe that's the case. We hope that's the case. But you certainly can't be counting on that. I think the terms that were put out there by this guy, Hector Gomez, are interesting too. If you can do 13 for 425, to me, you do that in a heartbeat if you're the Nats. That sounds to me, though, like a little low, to be honest with you. I mean, with Soto, you've heard people talk about maybe $500 million. Why would you settle now for 425? So I think that's kind of interesting. And, and it's I don't think it's stunning necessarily uh, that those terms are not accurate, at least according uh, to what was reported by others. But I think it is encouraging that the sides are talking. I mean, I think that does at least tell you something. And I wonder if he has been told anything about the ownership because, yeah, until that's resolved, we don't know. And keep this in mind, too. I feel like this is not getting a lot of attention. 
We supposedly have these contractual decisions on Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez that have to be made by the All-Star break. Well, we're now into the month of July. Over the next few weeks, who knows what's going to come up with Rizzo and uh, Martinez in terms of do their options get picked up? Do they not get picked up? You never know what the learners, what they're going to do with something like this. So that's up in the air too. There are so many questions. And like we've been saying all along, it's hard to answer the other ones. Not that they aren't important questions, but it's hard to answer the other ones until you know the answers to the big ones that have to be addressed first. And that's the owner, the GM, the manager, uh, I think comes before anything else. And, you know, as far as Soto waiting it out and seeing if the team wins, the danger there also is that even if you do see signs of success going into 2024, well, that's now his walk year. And so is he uh, willing to sign at that point or just say, well, hang on, I'm, I got here now, so I'm going to play this out and go be a free agent. Now, in Strasburg's case, it was early in his walk here, the original time that he signed his extension. So it is possible. Scott Boris is going to say that he works for the client always and he'll do whatever his wishes are. But I think Juan is also smart enough to know that Scott Boris, whatever you think about him, is a really smart man and usually gets what he wants in the end. And so the closer we get to the end of the contract, the harder it would seem to be to re-sign him. But like we've said a few times this year when the subject comes up, it's just hard to see how there's any real serious movement on this at this stage of the game. It would already be difficult if ownership was settled and if the team was good, it would already be a, a tough thing to have happen now. When you throw those factors into it, it just makes it to me almost impossible to believe this is going to be resolved anytime soon. This just feels like it's going to keep getting pushed back. And that's why the offers, you know, it's nice to hear these numbers, whether they're accurate or not, but you got to remember, these are just going to keep going up over time. These are steps, these are stages along the way. And there's just not a lot of reason, I don't think, for Juan Soto and Scott Boris right now to say yes to it. No, it's been hard to be optimistic about this extension being done this season or being done at all. But the wild card would be if Soto does have more Strasburg in him than we ever knew, and that maybe he doesn't want to go through free agency and he wants to re-sign. I mean, I'll never forget that Strasburg presser, May 2016, and the look on Scott Boris's face of, I can't believe I'm allowing one of my clients to do this so close to free agency and he's signing an extension. How could I let this happen? That look on Boris's face was priceless at that press conference. Yeah, well, in the end, it worked out fine for Scott Boris. Maybe not for Steven Strasburg, although he got his World Series and his MVP. But if you're Scott Boris, you got that extension and you got the opt-out, and that has led them to the position that they're in now. No doubt. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter, at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast, hit up Tim Shover's. Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, all Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 1067 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. So, in this month of July, we're going to do something special at the ends of episodes of Nats Chat. We're going to take you through the month of July from last year. July 2021 was when everything changed for the Nats. The Nats actually entered. July of 2021, two games above 500, if you can believe that. And then everything fell apart in that month. And that month is so crucial in terms of why we are where we are. And what we're going to do is highlight what happened one year to the day. So on this installment of the Nats Chat Podcast, we're going to spotlight the game that I talked about, we talked about at the beginning of this episode. July 1st, 2021, 
game one of what ended up being a four-game sweep to the Los Angeles Dodgers at Nationals Park, July 1st through the 4th of last year. This was a 6-2 rain-shortened five-inning loss to the Dodgers on Thursday night, July 1st, 2021. And among the many things in this game was the Nats' backup catcher, Alex Avila, playing second base due to a wide range of just weird things that had come up. Trey Turner and Jordy Mercer unavailable, number of minor league infielders injured, Luis Garcia, Adrian Sanchez, Carter Keboom. And so Alex Avila, who had never played second base in his major league career, which started in 2009, was the Nats starting second baseman in this game. And then two days later, he got placed on the 10-day injured list with bilateral calf strains. Here you go. Of course, the latest with the Nationals, Trey Turner. Not in the lineup for the first time all year. Jammed a finger on his left hand. Diving into third with a triple that gave him the cycle yesterday. Now a half swing and a chopper up the middle. It's Avila to his left. Behind the bag at second. And the throw to first for the outs. Two away. Alex Avila, the second baseman in a shortstop position, made that play. Two out and nobody on. Has he been doing it his whole life? Bellinger can run. He's down the line pretty quickly. And, I mean, the bench is going crazy. Robles gave him a... A big salute in center field, like he's been doing it forever. I don't think anything was more fascinating with this game from a Nationals perspective than this reconfigured infield. Trey Turner, who, as we talked about in the last installment of the Nats Chat podcast, jamming his left middle finger and sliding into third base on the triple that gave him the cycle in that 15-6 win over Tampa Bay at Nats Park on Wednesday. Jordy Mercer in that game suffered a cramp in his right quadriceps, and so the Nationals for this game one against the Dodgers on Thursday night, incredibly, had Alex Avila as the team starting second baseman, Josh Harrison as the team starting third baseman, and Starling Castro as the team starting shortstop. Is this truly the ultimate sign of the Nationals' lack of depth this season, or was this more so just a confluence of a number of things, the stars aligning to where the Nats had no choice but to put their backup catcher as their starting second baseman? This was a pretty incredible confluence of events. There's an argument to be made that, yes, there is a lack of depth and maybe the fact that they have been going with a short bench for a couple of weeks now came back to haunt them as well. But there were a lot of things that had to happen to end up with Alex Avila at second base. So let's run through this. Trey Turner you know, was hoping to come back, but his finger was still swollen. And so they realized probably can't do it. Going to have to wait a day or two for that. Jordy Mercer... His quadriceps were still sore and couldn't get it loosened up, and so he wasn't good to go. Now, they were trying to get them ready, and the decision wasn't made, I'm told, until about 5.30 for the 7 o'clock game when they finally told Avila, hey, guess what? You're playing second base tonight. They had warned him that that was a possibility before that, but they didn't know for sure until 5.30. Now, the failure, it would seem, on this is if you knew you had two infielders who might not be available to you, why not get somebody down here from AAA just in case, even if you don't have to call them up? And here's where the bizarre confluence events occurred. Luis Garcia is on the minor league injured list. Adrian Sanchez is on the minor league injured list. Carter Keboom is not on the minor league injured list, but apparently he just hurt his knee sometime in the last 24, 48 hours. And so he was not available. I think they tried or they thought that was what they were going to do. And he was not available. Jackson Clough, who's at AA, is apparently injured. So they basically had no other infielder in the system 
that they could even call upon if they wanted to. And it's why, as we're taping this late on Thursday night, I think Mike Rizzo and Davey Martinez are working the phones and trying to figure out what they're going to do for Friday. And I think there's going to be somebody here. I don't know who it is. I don't know if it is somebody else from within the system or maybe even somebody from outside the system that they're going to try to get here on Friday to make sure this doesn't happen again. It was amazing to see this. I mean, you will see guys play out of position at times. I can't say that I can ever remember seeing a backup catcher be called upon to play second base like that. That was really odd. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.